morning, FCF. It's great to see all of your smiling faces today. May God give us grace as we go through his passage in Colossians 3. You know, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, you know, he's instructing the believers in how to live out their new life that they have now that they've been bonded with Christ, uh, putting to death sin and putting on the character of Christ and becoming a community built around the Lord Jesus Christ. God intends his people to be a visible model of the gospel. We read here in Colossians 1 that the gospel had had an effect on the Colossians and that they were growing in faith and hope and love and they were bearing fruit. And that's what happens when the gospel is planted is that it bears fruit, not only individually in our lives, but as a community of believers. Mark Dever states, the church is the gospel made visible. When we hear the gospel, when we believe it by faith, the transformation begins to take place in our lives individually and corporately. He wants us to live our lives together in such a way that we taste the future reality of heaven with Christ. We get a little slice of heaven here on earth in this community of faith. And to demonstrate the good news of reconciliation, not only to each other, as we live in harmony and peace with each other, but also to a watching world. As Paul has already talked about in Colossians 1, Christ is the head of his church. He is an authority over his church. He is the one who established the church by the sacrifice of his own body and the shedding of his own blood. He purchased a people for himself. And all over this world today, there are congregations of, of pockets of believers who are worshiping God. It's almost like if you go to a football game, you see the wave go. You know, everybody's up and they're doing the wave around. Around the world on Sunday, there's a wave that goes across the globe as people worship God in spirit and in truth. He has authority over his church to regulate what she says and how she lives. Um, he empowers his church with his spirit to, and as he indwells each of us and it's his relationship with us individually that really helps shape our relationship with each other. Christ is all and he is in all for those of us here today who are believers. Because of his glorious salvation, Christ's church in every locale should be a joyful, thankful congregation always rejoicing in their king and in his kindness to us. The goal of every church is to glorify Christ in the congregation and to be a vibrant witness to those outside. For, for Christ, if we know, if we talked in our small groups, we talked about Christ, Christ being the, the sole sufficient Savior. From him and through him and to him come all things. In our previous messages, we're going to quickly review in Colossians 3, we've looked at our identity in Christ, our kingdom identity in Christ, that we died with Christ, were buried and were raised with him, and that we no longer live, but Christ now lives in us. And we were told last week that we are elect, that we are holy, and that we are beloved. And so our focus now is on who we are and our destination. Our destination is heaven. The famous Hockey player Wayne Gretzky, when asked how, what was the 
key to his success, he said, I skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it is. And in our Christian's life, we need to skate, if you will, in our mind to our future and what God has for us. Not meaning we neglect the present, but that we are beginning to live and act more and more the way we will on the other side. Second, we talked about putting to death the sin that remains. Now, it's interesting in this, in, uh, as we read the Bible, coming from an individualistic American mindset, we almost read the Bible as an individual letter to us, which, which it is. But when you read the context of the letter, this letter was written to a group of people. This letter was written to the Colossians, and it is a joint group exhortation for all of them there to put off the old man and to put on the new man. That's why he uses the plurals in those verses. Let's talk real briefly again how we put to death sin. For those, if you're having a sin problem, which we all do, if you have a persistent sin in your life that you're having a hard time getting rid of, whether it's lust or worry or whatever, here are some biblical thoughts to help you be, to begin to grow in becoming able to put that off and put on the new man. First, you need to rejoice that you're a new creation in Christ. That needs to become real in your life, that you are not who you used to be. You are, you are now a new creation in Christ. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, said, Before the face of God, there stands only two men, Adam and Jesus Christ, and all others hang before God by their girdle strings. That's an interesting statement, girdle strings. So imagine literally before the throne of God, we have Adam and Christ, and you're either lined up under Christ or you're lined up under Adam. And what the Bible says is when you trust Jesus, you shift from being in Adam's family over to being in Christ's family. And so we're a new creation in Christ. Secondly, as we're fighting against sin, we need to confess our pride and humble ourselves before the Lord. We sin out of pride. We sin for our own glory, our own purpose, our own pleasure. So we need to constantly be aware that this, let's, let's not focus on the fruit of the sin. Let's focus on the fact that there is pride within us that would cause us to disobey the holy God of the universe. Okay? Third, renew your mind by the word to put off false beliefs and to put on truth. Romans 12 talks about this. 12.2, do not conform your to the pattern of the world. Be, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Christian life, we have, we have a new nature, we're a new creation, we still have an old processor. And it has to be renewed. It has to be reprogrammed. And that is, the, that is the goal for the rest of our lives. And the more we take off false belief and put on truth, the more we are able to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of the Lord Jesus. So immersing ourselves in the Word, we'll talk about that a little bit more this, today. Four, Approach God's throne for grace in time of need. When you're fighting sin, there's always a time of need. 
Don't go into the battle of sin on your own, in your own power, in your own strength, in your own confidence. Approach God's throne and humbly acknowledge that you need his grace to be able to put to death this sin and to put on the righteousness of Christ. Number five, meditate on scriptures that draw you to Jesus. This is a little more precise definition of three. That draw you to Jesus and his steadfast love for you and his perspective on the sin that you're considering committing. Meditate on those and get the mind of Christ in dealing with whether it's lust or worry or laziness or anxiety, whatever it may be. Use the word of God to help change the way you think about that. Six, it's time to starve the old man with his desires. It's time for radical surgery. The Bible says if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. So if you have things in your life that are feeding this sin, whether it, whatever the sin is, it's time to begin to remove those, to cut those off. Maybe it's a relationship with someone that's ungodly and is causing you to sin. You need to cut that off. Or maybe it's some entertainment you're involved in or, or things you're reading or just thoughts that you just continue to have. You're going to have to cut those off for the sake of putting to death sin. Now, unfortunately, a lot of us, that's our, own, that's our only strategy. Our strategy is, you know, don't look, don't handle, don't taste. Just, we're going to stay away from that. We're going to avoid that. So we have a man, and he struggles with lust, so he, he can't go here, and he can't go there, and he can't go here. Before long, he can't go anywhere. There's a place for that to get victory over that. But there has to be a renewing of who you are and how you think so that you can now function in the world and be able to see somebody who's not dressed modestly and be able to look the other way and move on down the road and rejoice in God's goodness and his purity and his holiness. So there's a place for starving the old man. No question about that. There is, though, it cannot be our only strategy. It has to be drawing back to Christ for strength and encouragement in these things. Next, and we'll talk about this today, in the corporate, in the corporate church, we need to hear truth and, and accountability from fellow brothers and sisters. It's very important that we, um, that we are able to help each other. When he tells us here to put to death all these things, he's talking to the body. He's not just saying, go off by yourself and put to death your sin by yourself. He's saying, as a body, let's help each other Put that off. So there's accountability, there's encouragement. But accountability needs to always point back to Christ and to his word and to the spirit and trusting in him for it to be helpful. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 says, if a brother's caught in sin, you who are spiritual, help him. Restore him. All of us from time to time fall into sin. And it's difficult to get out of it by ourselves. We need each other. We need someone to come alongside and pray with us, to speak truth into our hearts, to help us to walk in ways that are worthy of Christ. This is why we need each other. We can't just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, even if we know all the scripture. We need that encouragement. 
it's really important if you're struggling with sin in your life that you find somebody in this church that you can tell and that they can help you to get out of the ditch and back on the king's highway. The elders would love to do that. Don't sit here for years and years and years struggling because you're afraid of, oh, I don't want them to know what I've done or I don't want to be shamed or whatever the situation is. Our goal is to keep your sin covered and to help you work your way out of it. Sometimes there's confusion in the church when we mention church discipline. And people may think, well, wow, if I'm struggling with sin and I'm not having success and I go to the elders, they're going to put me under discipline. And they're going to read some letter before the church and they're going to send me out the front door and I don't really want that. that could, there's nothing that could be further from the truth. Our goal is to come alongside gently and to help you get out of the sin that has you bound. And we're willing to spend whatever time it takes for that to be the case. So if you're here today and there's sin that just has you around the neck and you've tried everything and you're just bound by it, this is the purpose of the body of Christ is to be able to come alongside and to help take the the rope from around your neck and to set you free and to speak the word of God to you and to pray for you and to love you and to admit, hey, you're dealing with a fellow sinner here. None of us here are perfect. We all fight sin. We all have our days when we're successful. We all have our days when we are not. And we go to the throne of grace where there's help for us. And we're all hopefully on a slow, gradual, progressive climb toward holiness in our lives. There's hope. And sometimes we just need to hear that. You know, I remember Lou Priolo in one of his books, he was talking about he had his own fear of flying because he was afraid he would die and his family would be left to themselves. And he really got kind of paralyzed by that. And so he'd tell his wife, listen, honey, I need you to tell me, speak some truth to me. And she'd say, I'm supposed to speak truth to you. You're the biblical counselor. But he just needed to hear. God is sovereign. God's in control. He's going to take care of you on the flight. If something happens to you, God's going to take care of us. It's going to be okay. This is the role of the church. And then finally, um, thank God for every small victory. Every small victory that you have that he gives you over your battle against sin, Thank him for it. Rejoice in it. And the times when we fail, run into his arms. Run into his arms, thanking him and asking forgiveness. A lot of us, when we sin, we have to wait till we kind of work our way to get better. Then we go back to God. No, when we sin, go right into his arms, knowing that he loves us, he forgives us, and he's going to give us grace. And then finally, Whatever point this is, I've lost count, is as we're putting on the character of Christ, we're now going to be showing compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience to others. Ministry. A lot of us want to fight our sin, but we want to focus on ourselves. You fight your sin by focusing on Jesus and focusing on others in ministry. Nancy Ledemoss said, as those who have died with Christ, been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through faith, Our joy and hope do not emanate from any earthly source or from our own religious practices. 
but from him. Our victory emanates from Christ. Our victory emanates from his relationship with us. And so let's always keep that in our focus. Within the four chapters of this short epistle, she says, Paul has called us to, to become sexually pure, compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient, forgiving, loving, peaceful, obedient, just, wise, gracious, and thankful. And then she goes, phew, that's a tall order. It is. It's an impossible order. But everything we are called to be and do as Christians flows out of who Christ is and what he's already done in us. We are new creations. And he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. So our focus remains on him. The Bible says in 1 Peter 1.23 that we have been given an imperishable seed that will never fail. He has planted something in us and it's going to grow. And in the end, it's going to look just like Jesus when it's fully complete. What a great encouragement that is to us as we walk this life of faith. And then finally, we talked about putting on Christ's character, and we got down and we talked about the importance of that individually and corporately last week. Um, so we got through several, and I'm going to talk today about kind of the, the characteristics of the transformed church. What are the marks of the transformed church? And they are what we're looking at in the put-ons and put-offs. It is one, compassionate hearts. As, as we continue to become a transformed church more and more to the image of Christ, there's compassion among each other. There is kindness. There's humility. There's gentleness with each other. There's patience. There's forbearance. There is forgiveness. There's love. And why can we offer those to each other? Very simply, because Christ has offered all those to us. He has dealt with us with a compassionate and kind heart. He has been patient and forgiven us. He forbears with us. And so as he has done to us, so we can do to each other. Again, the the book is written not to just us individually. It's written to us as a body of believers. So we're going to look today at four more characteristics of the transformed church. We're going to look at being ruled by his peace. We're going to look at the um, thankful for his salvation, saturated in his word, and driven by his glory. This last part of the passage, we kind of flew 90 miles an hour over last week, so we're going to try to hit it a little better today. Okay? All right. Ruled by his peace. The scripture says, And let the peace of Christ, verse 15, rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Again, he's talking to these people. You're part of one body, you are the church. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This word peace really has two facets to it. One, it's a peace that's been formed by a treaty. And our peace with God is because of the shed blood of Christ and the covenant that we've received. 
We have peace with God. Isn't it great that God is not against us? Isn't it great that God is for us, that he loves us because of what Christ has done? And second, peace is an attitude of rest and security. Because we are right with God, there should be security. There should be rest. We can take a breath. We have been forgiven. We're not on the wrong side of the track. Christ is for us. The word rule describes the activity of an umpire in deciding the outcome of an athletic contest. How many of y'all have been umpires before? A few of us have. It can be a painful situation to be in, especially if you choose the wrong call, especially with your home team upset about the way you made that call. But this is what peace is supposed to be. It's supposed to be an umpire in our lives. When you need to make a moral choice in your life, the peace of Christ produces in our hearts a determining factor. As we are looking at a moral choice, we have to ask two questions. One, if I make this moral choice, is it going to maintain my peaceful relationship with Christ since Christ died for my sin, was buried and raised? Is it going to maintain that relationship? And the other one is, if I make this choice, is it going to keep peace with the brothers and sisters in Christ? Is it going to be something Because for it to be a moral choice, it has to please God and please who? Men. We may have a brother who we've had a problem with. And and there's an issue there that we need to deal with. Our natural tendency may say, let's just forget that, move on. But it's a serious issue. It's a problem that needs to be dealt with. We could say, I'm just going to leave it at peace there and not touch it. But our relationship with God says, no, you have a brother over here who's caught in a sin. They need to be encouraged. So we need to do the thing that needs to be done in that situation. To have peace with Christ is a picture of things to come, isn't it? It is a picture of things to come. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. In heaven, there is peace, praise God. There's no rumors, there's no gossip, there's no slander, there's no fighting. There's peace. You can decide that what goes on in heaven goes on in your heart. We live in an age in which there's not a lot of peace, is there? Everywhere you turn, there's a problem. There's a crisis. Something's going on. But because of our relationship with Christ, we can choose to have the the peace of heaven living within us. This is what Paul did. Do you think Paul had a lot of peace sitting in the Roman jail, knowing it's just a matter of time before Nero decides it's time to take his head off? That wouldn't be a peaceful situation. But Paul had his focus on the church. He had his focus on heaven. How about Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail? Remember that situation? They'd just been beaten and flogged. They were, they were chained. And they had this peace to worship and sing songs to God. How about Stephen? Here he is in the midst of his countrymen gritting their teeth and racing toward him and stoning him. And he looks up and he sees Christ standing 
at the right hand of God. In the midst of this incredibly unpeaceful situation, he looks into heaven and he sees his destination. Brothers and sisters, for us to have peace, to let it rule in our hearts, we have to be willing to set our minds on things above where Christ is. There's a lot of stuff in this world that can get us anxious and concerned and, and distressed. But the most important relationship in the world we have peace with. We have a peace with God. And even with people who we don't have peace with, because we have the peace with God, we can still be what? Compassionate, kind, and humble, gentle, and patient as we deal with others. You know, it's kind of like a man who has been doing some job searching. He knows his company's not doing real well. Matter of fact, his company's getting ready to go bankrupt. And he's just had his final interview with this, this new company, and they want to hire him in six months. He goes to work. Everybody else is all concerned about what's going to happen, and is anybody going to get left, kept on, on the payroll and all this concern? He goes to work. He's quietly whistling because everybody thinks think he's weird. But, but why? His focus is now somewhere else, isn't it? His focus is where he's going. His focus is going to this Fortune 500 company that's, you know, had great profits every year. He knows he's secure in this new, in this new endeavor. All of us, because of Christ, are secure and know him, no matter what is going on around us. The only things that cause problems in church, as far as peace, is really sin, isn't it? Three types of sin would be false teaching, divisiveness, and blatant sin. And those all have a remedy, don't they? All those situations can be confronted in love, and people can be shown the error of their ways, and they can repent 90%, 90% of churches dealing with conflict ends in peace because a brother goes to someone else and says, hey, brother, let's not do that. That's that's sin. Or walks alongside and gives encouragement. 90% of that is just brother to brother dealing with things and keeping things peaceful. And this is part of our job. Part of our admonition here is to do that. And we'll get to that in our next next couple of points. Okay, secondly, we have the thankfulness for his salvation. In verses 15, 16, and 17, we see the command to be thankful. In 15, he says, and be thankful. In 16, he says, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In 17, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thankfulness should be a trademark of those who've been purchased by Christ. It's just, that's just who we should be. As Christ Christ abounds in his infinite splendor and in his grace toward us, so as we walk by faith in him, we have abundant motivation and divine enabling to live a life that is always abounding in thanksgiving. When you think about what we've been forgiven, when you think about what he has planned for us, when you think about what he's doing right now in our lives, we should be just overflowing with thankfulness. 
Unfortunately, a lot of us are like Eve in the garden, looking around wanting to know why we can't have the fruit on that tree right over there. Is that not true? We'll always find something that we're not grateful for. And there's plenty to not be grateful for, but compared to what we have, we should constantly be overflowing with thanksgiving. Psalm 107, 1 and 2 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. One of your assignments this week is to read Psalm 107. It's an amazing psalm of how God rescues people after people after people from distress. We have been rescued from so much. So much thanksgiving. We're thankful, even just in chapter 3, for the union we have with Christ. We're thankful that we have been saved. We're thankful because we have already experienced grace and because God is helping to set us free from sin. We're thankful that we have died with him and our old man is gone and now we are simply walking and moving forward and putting to death what remains of the earthly man to become what Christ wants us to be. We have so much to be grateful for. How are you as far as being grateful? Thankfulness as a body is contagious, isn't it? How would you rate us as a thankful body? Thankfulness is a key to putting off sin. It really is. It's hard to go get into sin when you're thankful for all that God has done. Those things just don't kind of fit together, do they? Young men, when you're tempted to sin, start thanking God for all the blessings he's given you. Older people, when we get to the point of being worried, let's recount the blessings of the Lord. Change our direction of our thinking. Rejoice in him always. So we're to be ruled by his peace. We're to be thankful for salvation. Number three, we're to be saturated in his word. Saturated in his word. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The word dwell literally means to live in or to be at home with. In other words, the word of God needs to walk into your house and take over. Have you ever had anybody come and live with you for a while and they kind of took over and they kind of removed the curtains and they, they rearranged the furniture and they did all this kind of stuff and they threw some stuff out they didn't like? Most of us haven't experienced that. This is what the word of God does, though. It comes into our life, it takes up abode, it lives there, and it starts putting off and putting what? On. But it has to dwell richly among us. The word richly is abundantly or extravagantly rich. May I say to you that I think everyone here could increase the richness of the word in your home, in your thoughts, in your daily life. It's so important to do that. 
Matthew 4, 4, Jesus is in the wilderness. Satan is trying to tempt him to take a stone and turn it into bread. And Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We do have to eat. I love to eat. The Bible says as kingdom citizens, we have a different kind of food. It's the word of God. And we need to nourish ourselves with it. And in the context of the church, we need to nourish each other with it. This is what we're trying to do right now from the leadership and the, and the, and the teaching ministry of the church is to nourish you in the word. When you finish, we talk to each other about the message or we share a scripture with each other. We're now ministering in the word or we have a more mature brother encouraging a less mature brother in the faith. We are ministering the word. As we go home and we read the word of God together, we're sharing the word together. In all these different contexts, we are administrating the word to each other. You realize in all missionary work, the very first thing that happens in most situations is somebody comes in and learns the language and 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 translates the scripture into that culture. The word of God is critical for the transformation of the church. It is absolutely critical. Notice here that he tells us when the word is richly dwelling in us, we're going to be doing what? Teaching, which is giving positive encouragement from the word in whatever ways. Teaching. It could be teaching negative things too about what we should avoid, but it's a teaching ministry. There's also an admonishing ministry where we're warning people, stop living like this. Start living like this. And that happens from all of us. This is why all of us need to be richly dwelling in the word so that we have something to share with each other. It's like coming to the potluck and you're the only one who brought a a platter. It's going to be skimpy, isn't it? This is why you persevere in the word, to love Christ and draw close to him, but to have something to share with somebody else. A warning against false teaching, a warning against sinful behavior. We are in this together. That to me is very encouraging, that we're on this pilgrimage together. We all have individual responsibility, right? But we have a corporate responsibility to each other. Are you meditating on the word? Is it the word of God is really what shapes and molds the people of God. As we turn the word loose in our teaching and in our time in the word, God molds and shapes us by two things, by his word and by his spirit. This is why we have hope there's progress because of that. And then finally, guess what this word does? We have this word, we're teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. Well, where did that wisdom come from? The word of God. And then listen to what it says. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. When the word dwells richly, guess what comes out of that? Praise. Worship. The unconverted don't sing. There's no grace in their hearts. That comes from the redeemed. We have a song to sing. We've got a lot of songs to sing. 
because of what has happened to us. When we worship God, Bob Coughlin says, we join an activity that began in eternity and will continue forever. The triune God valuing his beauty and worth above everything else. When you and I sit here and we are led in these songs, this is not something new. This has been before the foundations of the earth. Worship of God. And the Bible says, for that to be honoring to him, we must richly dwell in the word. He says psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Well, what are all those things? There's different opinions on those. The psalms, I would say, are the Old Testament psalms. They would sing psalms as they went up to Jerusalem for feasts. Hymns. Some people believe Romans 11, 33 through 36 and Philippians 2, 5 through 11 are, were hymns that were sung. They were written, they were sung. And then songs of different types, spiritual songs that are about God. There's a variety of music that goes up to God. But notice what the source of all that music is. It's the word of God. Because it te- it, those songs should teach us who he is and what he's done. The truths of Scripture should permeate every aspect of our life, governing every thought, word, and deed. And that should be true as we sing, as we worship. I just really want to make a plug for First Light. We're going through a series right now by John Piper on worship. And as we meditated this morning before we started in John 4, let's turn there real quickly. You were apprehended by God, and one of those purposes is right here in John 4. It says, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship must worship him in spirit and truth. God is seeking worshipers. May I say to you that what we see going on in Colossians 3 is God shaping and molding people into worshipers. They have been changed. They are putting off the old man. They're putting on the new man. And they're moving and they're growing in their knowledge of God. And they are becoming people who give him worship. That's the goal of sanctification is to become like Jesus and to worship him in a way that is true and right. Music has a twofold purpose. It's to exhort and confront the saints with the truth and to make the request and praise for our great God in their heart and mind. So when we're worshiping, we're singing together, aren't we? We are focused on God and we are saying truth about God, but we're also listening to what we're singing, aren't we? And what each other is singing. And we're admonishing each other to live in the truth of God and to know him as he is. 
and to give him the glory and honor and praise that he deserves. And music is active. You don't just sit there like you are right now. <clears throat> you have to take a breath. You have to get another breath. You have to let it out. You have to let it, let it go. And, and worship him with all that you are. So it's an encouragement to each other, but it's also, an, it's also pleasing to him. Our worship is God-centered, God-focused, and yet we're doing it together. I don't know about you, but I love singing with others. I love hearing the voices together. I went to the Together for the Gospel Conference this year. Had 8,000 men singing with a piano. I loved it. My soul just soared as we worshiped Christ together. There's something about corporate worship that's different. We all find our way out into the meadow to worship and pray or to see the stars at night or to get into our prayer closet. But there's something very special and encouraging about corporate worship. And the context of this passage is corporate worship. Piper goes on, we'll quote him just a little bit here. Truth without affection produces dead orthodoxy in a church full of artificial admirers. This is why worship has to come from the heart. It's just not just singing the words. We have had to be changed into new people for our heart to be engaged in worship of God. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates shallow people who refuse the discipline of rigorous thought. True worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections for God rooted in truth are the bone and the marrow of biblical worship. As truth produces sanctification, so truth also produces what? Worship. It produces worship. Coughlin again, where the word of God is taught correctly, the opportunity exists for the informed worshipers to respond. Our worship should be in spirit and truth. And finally, in this passage, he talks about being driven by his glory. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We're to display our king in how we live. Jesus said in John 4, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. We are to be representatives of Christ. In the name of Jesus means to act consistently with who he is and what he wants. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, we're told, and so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Do it all for the glory of God.
There's a story of a man who was working with children in a children's ministry. And he was doing it on the beach with some kids. And he came up one morning and a little kid kind of ran across the sand and goes, Mommy, Mommy, there's the Jesus man. And he paused and he thought, you know, what a privilege to be called the Jesus man. What have I done to deserve that title? We all are called to be the Jesus man. To be the Jesus woman. To be the Jesus boy. To be the Jesus girl. That in some small way reflects the beauty of Jesus Christ. In this passage, Paul wants this church to be ruled by his peace, thankful for his salvation, saturated in his word, and driven by and for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today, and we are grateful that we are your children and that you have begun a process of making us more into his image. Father, may we all realize we are in this together in this local body called FCF. And Lord, help us to let your word dwell richly in us that we would have something to share with each other, to spur each other on toward love and good deeds. Lord, for those who are struggling, who are being beaten up by sin, may they know there's help here. Not judgment, but help to get out of the ditch and to be on the king's highway. Father, may our congregation continue to grow in thankfulness to Christ. And Father, May we come to the place where everything we do, whether in word or deed, would it be done for the glory of Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.